0: And turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I will probably take a moment tonight to make the envelopes available to you if you're interested in getting the revival fires. And I'm not going to make any major announcements this morning for the sake of time. I realize Sunday morning everybody's in a hurry. (laughs) So I won't take time for that. But there are, if you were here the last time I was here, I'll tell you this there are some new books. Probably anywhere between four and six new books since I was here the last time. Some of them are children's books. Some of them are the other variety as far as written to adults. But uh, there are new books. So if you want me to point those out to you, I'll be at the table to close of the service. Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. If you've located that, would you go ahead and stand with me, please? Stretch your legs one last time. I would read the text and pray. Heavy, heavy emphasis on the word last. You need to understand something about me. When people walk around while I'm preaching, it distracts me. When I get distracted, I forget where I'm at in the sermon. The only thing I know to do is go back to the beginning <laughs> and start over. So if you'd like to eat sometime today, help me. And I joke about that, but please help me, folks. It is impossible to preach to a crowd while there's a parade going on in the same room. And it seems like after the first person moves, everybody feels like they have license, and the only way to stop it is for the preacher to tell somebody, sit down, and then everybody gets offended. So let's avoid that because I'm not beyond telling somebody to sit down, but I'd really rather not have to do that. And uh you know i 'm going to be as brief as I can, but please help me and let 's make sure we have sanctity where somebody can hear without distraction they're they're not distracted by things going on around. So please help me with that. Second Timothy chapter four, verse six The Bible says, "For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course." I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Let's bow our heads together, please. Father, we love you. We thank you for the word of God and for the privilege to be in this place. And Lord, I yield to you. I ask, please, that you'd fill and use me to be a help and a blessing I pray there'd be a lost one, you'd draw that one to yourself and save them. I pray for your people, you'd stir us and minister to us. Pray you'd get your great glory in your name, and please bind the enemy, the strong man, off the service, that he'd have no impact. We pray you'd hedge us about in the Spirit of God, doing hearts of men and women what no preacher can do, and we'll give you the glory for what's accomplished. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated, please. I want to point out what he says here in verse 6. The Apostle Paul, when he penned these words by inspiration of God, was a prisoner of Rome. He was going to be publicly executed uh, in the very near future by Nero, an emperor, and uh, he was looking in the face of death. And Paul says in verse 6, For I am now ready to be offered. When he used that word offered, he likened himself to an Old Testament sacrifice that would be offered on the altar. And any Jewish person that brought a lamb of sacrifice to the altar understood uh, that once they offered the lamb and they turned to go home, the lamb was not coming with them. It was There was finality to this. It had to die. Paul said, uh, I am now ready to be offered. And the real key to what I want to talk about today is when he said, I am now ready. We understand the context. He was talking about dying. He said, I am now ready to be offered. And then he said, and the time of my departure is at hand. Oftentimes, people are bold about dying. Well, I don't care about dying. I don't care about hell. I don't care about... Uh, They talk that way when they think death is way off in the distance. But Paul knew because he was scheduled for public execution. He was looking in the face of death. I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. He said, I'm not talking about something's going to happen a year from now or six months from now or ten years He had days at most and maybe only hours when he penned these words and he could say with great confidence, I am now ready to be offered. The real question is, are you now ready? I'm not asking you what your good intentions are for tomorrow or for next week or what you think you might accomplish before you die, but are you now ready? He said, I am now ready. Ready? That word now does not speak of some later time. You know, in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, he tells us if we're not now ready, he tells us when to get ready. I don't know if you realize this or not, but God not only tells us how to get saved, he tells us when to get saved. In 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, he said, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Is there anybody here that doesn't know when now is? We know, don't we? Now is not later. Now is not a convenient season. Now is not when I get straightened out. Now is pressing. There is urgency. And God asks the unanswerable question, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, Hebrews 2 and verse 3. So he tells us that now is the accepted time. If there is an accepted time, there is also an unaccepted time. If any time was acceptable, and you could do it at your leisure, God would not have told us when the acceptable time is. He said, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You say, what's the big issue? Now is all you are sure of. And if God gave you hope for tomorrow... He might be the one that was responsible for you dying lost because he left you under the impression that you had more time. Uh, Jesus said to some people who wanted to kill him in the street, he said uh, uh, that uh, my time is not yet. He said uh, said, there's a certain way I'm going to die. It's prophesied in Scripture. I'm not going to die in the street. I'm going to die on the cross. He said, my time is not ready, but he said, your time is always ready. What was he telling them? That none of us know how long we have. There could be somebody listening to my voice this morning that has less than an hour in this world. This could be, it very well could be your final opportunity. It could be the last sermon you ever hear. It could be the last inv- invitation you're ever in. could be the last chance you ever have to get ready to meet God, could be the last chance you have to get saved. And if I were you, I'd look at it in that perspective because it certainly could be. And if it is and you miss this window of opportunity, it will be an eternal disaster. It won't be a small matter. Paul said, I am now ready to be offered. He said, I'm ready to die. By the way, can I say to you that everybody, Hebrews 9 verse 27 Bible says, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, after this, the judgment. Say, after what? After death. There's an after this. And we see that after this in Luke 16 where two men died and one was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom and was there comforted. The other man died, closed his eyes in death, and in hell he lift up his eyes being in torment and seeth Abraham afar off. And Lazarus in his bosom and cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in his flame. Abraham said, Son, remember. How awful will the memory be in hell to remember every wasted opportunity. Every time a soul winner spoke to you, every time you heard a sermon, every time you sat through an invitation, every time you pushed it aside and said, not now, not today. God said now and you said later. And you'll have all eternity to regret that, all eternity to remember. Your memory will torment you as much as the flames of hell because you realize how foolish it was to put this off, how foolish it was to say, not now, not today, when God said now. Proverbs 27, verse 1, he said, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Don't bank on something as fragile and as uncertain as tomorrow with something as precious and as permanent as your eternal soul at stake. There's too much at stake. You can't afford to make that gamble. We're not talking about losing money or time. We're talking about eternity and your never dying soul where you will spend forever and forever. And if you recall, when Abraham said, son, remember, the news was worse than what he thought. Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. He said, you are forever sealed in your fate. This is an irreversible problem. No wonder God warns in Proverbs 29 and verse 1, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. There's a time when there's no remedy. If you're lost this morning, doesn't matter how sinful you have been, there is a remedy. But when you close your eyes in death and open them in hell, there is no remedy for hell It's a permanent situation. There is no reversing it, no changing it. You have to be prepared before that event takes place. But he said it's appointed unto men once to die. By the way, that happens to be the ultimate in statistics. You have an appointment with death. You didn't make it. You can't cancel it. And I assure you, you will be on time for that appointment. But it's appointed unto men once to die. That happens to be the ultimate in statistics that one out of every one dies. Nobody escapes death. If you ignore it, it will not go away. If you flee, it will overtake you. If you hide, it will find you. There is no escaping death. It's appointed unto men once to die. If death is a certainty, and I don't know the timing, when, where, or how I'm going to die, I must be prepared now in order to be safe. Anything later than now is unsafe. It's dangerous. It is a major gamble that will cost me forever and forever for all eternity. You know, the Bible tells us in Psalm 90 and verse 10, talking about life, he said, It is soon cut off, and we fly away. If something's cut off, it implies that it doesn't gradually come to an end, but there's an abrupt ending. It is cut off. It is soon cut off. James 4, verse 13 and 14, he said, Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow. We will go into a certain city and abide there a year, and buy and sell and get gain Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Something vanishes, that's pretty quick. It happens without warning. And God warns of the brevity and the uncertainty of life. And that's why he tells us, uh, Paul said, I am now ready to be offered. He said, I'm ready to die now. Say, do he have a death wish? No. Say, you have a death wish? No, but I'm ready. A lot of things I want to do for God if he wants me here. But I'm not living in fear of death. And I am certain I'm going to die. And whether it's today or a year from now or six months from now or tomorrow or ten years from now, I'm not living in fear and uncertainty because in January 15, 1975, I settled the transaction, got born into the family of God. And I know for a Bible reason where I'm headed, but God said that we need to be ready now, not later. We don't need good intentions. We need to be prepared at the moment. You know, sometimes when a person says they know that they're going to heaven, someone else thinks, boy, they're arrogant, they're self-righteous. Paul said uh, in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, he said, I know whom I believe. He said, I'm ready, but earlier he said, and I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul was referring to that event that took place on the road to Damascus in, 9, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 6 when he received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and got born again. But he said, I know whom I believed. He said, I'm not depending on me. My faith's not in me. It's in Jesus Christ. I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he is able I'm not able to get myself to heaven, and I don't deserve to go to heaven. If I got what I deserved, I'd burn in hell. I know whom I believe and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. If I handed you my Bible and said, keep this for me, do you think I want you to protect it and preserve it? If I don't care what happens to it, I don't need somebody to keep it. So, to keep something for somebody is to preserve it, it's to protect it. And he said, I know whom I believed and persuaded he is able to keep, protect, preserve that which I have committed unto him. When did he commit it? When he believed. But it wasn't just intellectual belief, it wasn't just believing the facts. Uh, the word believe in the New Testament has to do with committing uh, yourself to, trusting, relying upon, Uh, Paul said, there was a day and a time on the road to Damascus when I stopped trusting being a Pharisee and a good person and I put all my eggs in one basket and if the Lord Jesus can't get me to heaven, I'm not going to go. I know what he did was sufficient to satisfy the Father, to pay the penalty of sin. I'm trusting his finished work as my way to heaven. I have a definite time and a definite place when I committed the care of my soul to him, Paul made a deposit. He said, I'm going to quit trying to save myself. He didn't say, I'm going to quit trying to live holy or live godly or live right. I'm just going to quit trying to save myself. He said, I'm trusting what Jesus did. And he said, I put this in his hands. I committed it to his care. I'm relying totally on what he did on the cross. Look. Let me put it in perspective for you. If you go to the bank and make a deposit, are you trying to get rid of that money? No? But you are putting it in someone else's care. Do you expect them to take care of it? Do you expect it to be there and in good shape when you're ready to draw on it? So you weren't trying to get rid of it but you did place it in someone else's care. You're trusting them with it. They're entrusted with it. You made a deposit. Uh, let me ask you this. How many of you would go to the bank and try to make a withdrawal when you never made a deposit? They put people like that in jail, you know. Uh uh-huh. you would not go and try to draw on something you never deposited. Let me ask you another question. Suppose you had $1,000, and instead of putting it in the bank, you put it in a tin can, buried it in the backyard, and while you were gone, somebody found out you had that $1,000 buried. They dug it up and stole your $1,000. When you came home and found it missing, Would you go to the bank and complain? Why? It's not their problem. You never committed it to their care. Please stay with me. You know, there's a lot of people in this world who say, well, I don't think a loving God would send a sinner to hell. A loving God doesn't send a sinner to hell. A loving God sent his son to Calvary so no sinner would have to go to hell. But if you're going to heaven, you have to make a deposit. God does not take hostages to heaven. He does not capture people and take them against their will. There has to be a day and a time when you make a deposit by faith, when you commit the care of your soul to Christ, when you rely upon him and experience the miracle of the new birth. And if you don't ever do that, it's not his responsibility to get you to heaven when you won't make a deposit. I assure you, if you make the deposit, he'll make sure it's secure. But if you never trust him and never make the deposit, it's not his fault you went to hell. He died for you, but he's not going to force you to receive him. There must be a definite time. Paul said, I know whom I believe and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed, that which I've deposited, that which I've entrusted him with, the care of my eternal soul. Against that day, what day is that? That was the day Paul was looking in the face that's the day you don't know which day is huh you and i don't know when that when which day is that day for us since paul was going to be executed he knew he knew when the time of his departure was scheduled he knew when they were planning to behead him he knew you don't have that luxury of knowing so you can't wait till the last hour or the last day or What if this is the last hour? What if it is? Better make sure you're ready. You know, Luke 12 and verse 20 tells us about a man who died unprepared. And when he closed his eyes in death, he heard these words from God. Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be? which thou hast provided. He said, you've done pretty good at providing materially, but he said, you did not, you played the fool. You did not prepare for the one certainty of life. That's death. There are a lot of uncertainties and possibilities in life, but I'm telling you, death is a certainty, not a possibility. It's appointed unto men once to die. Everybody under the sound of my voice is going to die at some point in time. I'm going to die. So I don't want to think about that. Yeah, I know because you want to live in fantasy land and assume there's always going to happen to somebody else. Nothing more dangerous than you and I living in denial and living in a state where we're not looking at truth and uh, preparing against the certainty that God declares in Scripture. You know, the Bible tells us that salvation is a must. And uh, Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In Acts 4 and verse 12, he said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must, we must be saved. This is not optional. It is a must. And When Jesus talked to Nicodemus, who was a good, moral, religious man, he said, Marvel not. Don't be shocked, Nicodemus, that I said unto thee that ye must be born again. You say, but he's a good man. I'm a good person. I'm a religious person. Yeah, so was he. Then why'd he have to be born again? Because first time you were born, you're born into Adam's family. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 says, as in Adam all die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. When I was born physically, I was born into sin and the wages of sin is a second death in hell. And for me to escape what I deserve, I have to get born into God's family. And just like Adam's sins imputed to me when I was born physically, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to me when I'm born spiritually. And according to the Bible, John 1 verse 12 tells me when I get born again, it said, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God by receiving Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. So the Bible tells us this is urgent. Now is the time. If you are not now ready, he said, behold, now is accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He said in Isaiah 1 verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. But come now, though the sin stain be deep and dark, come now. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1, he said, Remember now, thy creator, in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. God said, if I don't remember him in my youth, The days may come when I have absolutely no pleasure in life. Listen, no pleasure means no pleasure. No spiritual pleasure, no sinful pleasure, no worldly pleasure, no carnal pleasure. No pleasure means no pleasure. None. When people get to that state, they're usually suicidal but they take themselves to that point by rejecting Christ and putting themselves in a situation where their lives are so shallow, hollow, and empty that there's nothing there. They live in hopelessness. You know, I, uh, when I was a boy, I grew up in a brethren church. And uh, my dad used to take me and drop me off. He didn't go very much, but he made sure I went. He dropped me off every Sunday, and I had a whole string of those perfect attendance pins. You know, you get a pin the first year, and the next year is a little bar that hangs underneath there. It says second year, third year, fourth year. I had about six or seven years of perfect attendance in Sunday school. Wouldn't you think if you spent six or seven years, 52 weeks a year, once a week in a Sunday school class, that somebody by accident would give you a clear presentation of the gospel and tell you how to get born again? I mean, I'm talking over 300 times I attended Sunday school, and nobody ever made it clear to me. I had no clue. They talked all around the issue. Yeah, they talked about Jesus dying, being buried, rising again, believing, but they never defined what they meant by believing. Sure, I believe that. When I was 12 years old, I went to a catechism class. They asked a whole Sunday school class, bunch of questions and we all agreed that we believe those things. We acknowledge them intellectually. So they baptized all of us, made us members of the church. I went down a dry center, came up a wet center, still lost. Nothing happened in here. Water doesn't cleanse sin. The blood of Christ does. And There's got to be a time when you receive him and get born again. I was still lost. And uh, when I got into my teen years, I did what most lost teenagers do I quit church I had no interest I get out of church when I get out of church I got hooked up all the wrong crowd drug crowd alcohol crowd and of course my dad was a good hard-working man he wasn't saved at the time he was lost my dad was my hero and uh, what my in my mind whatever my dad is that's what a man is and uh, so he was my hero very hard-working man, high character in that area, always took care of the bills, never missed a day's work, all that kind of stuff. But on weekends, he liked drinking and fist-fighting, bar-hopping. And so I'm watching my dad, and I'm patterning myself because I'm going to be a big man like my dad's a man. And uh, so I started developing all those habits, getting involved in all those things, along with things that my dad didn't do, like the drugs and some of that other stuff. But I, I got involved in all that stuff. And uh, when I was about eighteen, I wasn't even old enough to drink yet. I got a job as a bouncer in a nightclub called The After Dark. And uh I was got the job and about when I was tw- I, right after I turned twenty years old. And I'd had that job for over a year, year and a half probably after I turned 20 years old, my dad had a heart attack. He's 39 years old. He didn't kill him, but they didn't give him a good report. And doctors told him, you're inoperable and we uh, can't do anything for you. You have bad blockages. Better set your house in order. You may have six months, may have a year. So that sobered him quite a bit, and he never was an atheistic guy, a guy. He always believed in God. That's why he took me to church and dumped me off there. But... He had been working with some fellas at the trailer factory that had a really good testimony. They were godly fellas, had a testimony, and he'd keep them at arm's length because he liked his drinking and carousing, but he really had a lot of respect for them because they were so real and so consistent. So when he had that heart attack, he got out of the hospital, Uh, he went down to hear one of them preach. One of them was a lay preacher. The other was a Sunday school teacher in a little country church too small uh, to pay a pastor. So they both had regular jobs and started that church. But he went down to hear the guy preach. The guy preached a gospel message like he'd been witness to so many times, but gave a weak invitation. I'm not sure people know how to give one of those, but anyway, they gave a weak invitation, and when they did... Uh, he got out of there, but he came home, took his Bible, he had just bought a Bible, Went, walked across the street, not really streets, old road, walked across the road into a wooded area, sat down under a hickory nut tree, read the Gospel of John, and when he read the Gospel of John, he got saved. And when he came out of that woods, he asked the Lord to save him while he was over there. When he came out of that woods, I mean, it wasn't like he came out with the glow of God on him, but within days... I'm looking at my dad and I'm thinking, who is this guy? And what in the world has happened to him? I mean, his life was transformed. Uh, he he was reading his Bible every day, praying every day, going to church, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Uh, you know, beer came out of the refrigerator, cigarettes out of the shirt pocket, cussing stopped. And he, after he got saved, two weeks later, my mother, who was a churchgoer, She got saved because she decided, I'm religious, but I don't have what he has. Whatever he has, I don't have that. I don't have that. So she got saved. And once she got saved, then they started working on me. You understand, I'm still following my dad's former example, and uh, I'm going that way as hard as I can, and I'm in shock about what's going on with him, and they started witnessing to me. I mean, they gave me absolutely no space. They witnessed to me, and they were annoying. I mean annoying. You know, say, well, preacher, you better be careful. You're liable to drive them away. Where are you going to drive them to? Hell number two. They're going to the only hell there is. They need Jesus Christ. They need him now. Somebody better press the issue. And they pressed the issue with me. I'm not kidding. Um, see, when I graduated in high school, I had a good job. Um, but I didn't move out and rent my own place. I went ahead and stayed there and paid board. So why would you do that? Because I like my mother's cooking a lot better than mine. So I stayed there and paid board. I rented to stay at home, and uh, I could come and go as I pleased. And I didn't basically have anybody telling me what I was allowed to do uh, because that income was paying rent. But the problem was, I was eating all those meals there. So when my dad got saved, I'd eat lunch with him every day. He'd come home work is about five minutes from there, and I'd sit down at the kitchen table, and my dad looked across the table and he'd say, Danny, if you don't get saved, you're going to die and go to hell." He had about as much tact as a wounded buffalo. But, I mean, I'd sit there and squirm, and uh, I was glad to get out of there. I'd gulp my food down, jump up, get out of there. But he never, I mean, he never failed. I'm, every time, every Sunday morning, he'd wake me up. I'd get in 2, 3 o'clock in the morning from that bouncing job. And uh, he'd wake me up. He'd come in and shake me. he say, Hey, you going to church this morning? And I'd tell him the same lie every week. I said, no, nah, I'm not going this morning. I said, I just got in. I said, I'll go tonight. I had no intention of going tonight. That's the biggest liar you ever saw. And uh, I was planning on being as far from the house as I could by nightfall. And uh, so, um, you know, my, my mother, I'd come in at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, that bouncing job sometimes, and I'd smell food. When I'd come in, she'd get up out of bed and come out. She'd have a meal warming in the oven. She'd get that meal out, put it on the table, and uh, feed me a big meal at 2 o'clock in the morning. And she'd say, hey, I want to read something to you. And I always thought, oh, no. Now, she was always back there in the book of Revelation where the locusts are coming out of the pit and stinging men for five months, and they want to die and can't die, you know. So I'd be sitting there eating this food, and she's reading this stuff to me, and I'm listening to it. And then I'd go to bed, hey, hey, rolling around all night, them things stinging me. Uh, but they just never ever eased up. They just kept the pressure on me, and uh, finally, you know, I always told them the same lies. My dad would wake me up, my time I'd come. But I made a mistake one Friday night. I was drag racing on Friday night, and uh, I, had, I had a hot car back then. I had a Plymouth Valiant with a two twenty five slant six in it. That baby would do a quarter mile in about five minutes. Uh, but I was racing a four-cylinder Yanko Vega, and I beat him on the first run, best of three. We lined up on the line. I floored it, popped the clutch, and springs went everywhere. I tore the clutch out of it, so I coasted off side of the road. Saturday, I got it towed to the house, put it on, jacked it up, put it on blocks, and uh, went and bought all the parts had nobody to help me. Sunday morning, I was up early, and I went out there and unhooked the drive shaft, un- unhooked the uh, linkage, unbolted the bell housing, wiggled the transmission off, dropped my chest, rolled off of the side, and started working on that vehicle. About nine o'clock, my dad came out, and I'm grease head to toe. He said, hey, you going to church this morning? And I'm thinking, does it look like I'm going to church this morning? But I did not say that to my dad because he didn't put up any guff. He'd been allowed to kick one of the blocks out and say, hey, big boy, how you doing? Feeling some pressure? Uh Put up with some of the stuff people put up with today. But I I told him the same lie. I said, nah, I said, I got to get this car ready so I can go to work on Monday. I said, I'll come tonight. Well, it didn't go as good as I thought. So all day long, I'm by myself, finally got everything back together, put the linkage in the drive shaft on, got ready, took it for a ride down the road, came back, did the final adjustments on the throwout bearing so I'd have enough slack in the pedal, ran in, got a shower, and came out. It was about 6.30. My mother was standing at the door. She said, oh, you're going to church. Well, not really. I said, that wasn't what I planned. She said, oh. She said, well, you know, you did tell your dad we're going to go today. And I thought to myself, I tell him that every week. But this is the first time I got caught at the house. And I had really, uh, really, it's been been hard on my dad because he set the example. Now he's saved going to heaven and I'm going to hell. And it's eating him up. And I had been arrested Three times in the last five weeks, the sheriff came by, served papers. Not, not, nothing bad, you know, assaulting battery, disturbing the peace, destroying public property, just fist fighting. But I had a bad fight anyway, but then I was so angry. I was under conviction and didn't know what conviction was. So what do you mean? Well, my parents had been praying for me and witnessing to me, and I got to where I wasn't enjoying my sin anymore. I was doing all the same stuff, but it, but it wasn't the same. And I was still lost going to hell, but I was doing all the same. And they had prayed me under conviction. It made me angry. I had an angry spirit. And um, didn't have that sweet spirit I have this morning. But, <laughs> but uh, I, I just looked at her, and I thought about my dad, and I thought, yeah, I'm killing my dad. I love my dad, but I thought, I'm killing the guy. Because it's just killing him that I'm lost and he, and he can't get me to even do a church service. I told her, I said, I asked her first, so what time do you all get out? She's about 8.30. I said, okay. I said, don't tell him any different. I said, I'll go. I said, they don't need me till about nine thirty, ten o'clock. That's when everybody loses their mind. You have to start throwing people out. I said, so I'll, I'll go ahead and come. So I, I went and sat in the back, you know, far back as I could get. I'm just paying my dues. I, I'm not here because I'm interested, of course. I mean, I'm just here to get them off my back, and I'm going to come in, and I'm slipping out, and this that's it. I sat down back there, and the preacher started preaching, and the Lord really got my attention, not have anything spooky happen. I got under conviction sitting there. You said, well, how do you know you were under conviction? Now, let me explain it to you this way. I, I did not mind my parents inviting me to church. But I did not appreciate them giving that preacher a list of my sins. And I'm telling you, about ten minutes into the sermon, I'm sitting back there with my arms crossed thinking, okay, buddy, there are other people here. You don't have to spend the whole sermon on me. Well, he wasn't doing that, but the Spirit of God made that sermon so personal. And once again, we came to the end of the service, and boy, I mean, if they'd give a decent invitation... Knew how to do it and give them one, I'd come forward and got saved because I mean, I was really, I knew I needed what they were talking about, and needed it bad. But they closed service. I went out, got my car, drove up the little T intersection, and I could make a right and go to that nightclub, the after dark, where I could make a left and go home. The only problem was when I got in the car, the Lord didn't stop dealing with me, still dealing with my heart. I didn't have to be in the church building. I mean, it kept going. I got, when I got a stop sign, I sat there probably 30 seconds, and there was a light snow falling, and I thought, you know, if you get in a car wreck, you're going to get killed and die and go to hell. You sure you want to gamble on that? And then the Lord just, I didn't see, and I didn't have a, anything spooky happen. I didn't hear an audible voice, and I didn't see a 900-foot-tall Jesus. Nothing weird happened. All that happened was the Lord convinced me in my heart, now or never. Now, that scared me. Because I was really kind of running. I didn't want it to be now, but I definitely didn't want it to be never, because I knew what my parents had was real. And they didn't want today without that. And when I considered the possibility of now or never, I said, you know, I better go to the house. I made a leap, went to the house, went in my bedroom, got on my knees. I spent all night praying. I asked the Lord, probably asked the Lord to save me ten times. I'm sure he did it the first time. And I spent the rest of the night confessing my sin. You say, you have to confess all your sin, be saved. No, but I was trying to get right with God. Uh, and when I got late, I wasn't done. Don't look at me surprised. The only thing holding your halo up is your horns. Uh, but when I come out of that room in the morning, I mean, i have the same person in many ways. But something happened in here that was a real transformation and the change began immediately. And the things that God did in my heart, uh, I bought a Bible that week. i known Bible. I went and bought a Bible, a leather Bible, spent almost a whole paycheck on a Bible. I, the lady cheated herself and I knew I'd gotten saved in because I made her take the 10 bucks she cheated herself out of. I'd never done that before. You can't count, that's your problem. Been my attitude, huh? But I gave her the $10, and I had to argue with her, get her to take it. She didn't believe she messed up on it. I said, no, I said, you did. I said, no. you didn't charge me enough. And uh, so went ahead and got that Bible. One Sunday morning, I was the first one out of bed sitting at the kitchen table. and My dad came through the hallway and saw me sitting there, and he said, where are you going to the drag races? I had some buddies that used to run street cars around the 12s and 13s, Uh, And there was a track about 40 miles from there. (laughs) That's the only time i get up early on Sunday morning was to do that. And I said, no, I'm going to church. When I told him I was going to church, he just took off for the bathroom. I'm sure he was catching tears and in shock. Uh, That morning I went to church and I could hardly wait for the preacher to get done. You know, kind of like some of you, but for a different reason. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) I could hardly wait for him to get done because, I mean, I wanted to get down here. I want to know I'm going to heaven. I'm worried about this. I'm telling you, I want to be saved. I want to know I'm saved. I don't want to think or I want to know because I believe there's a heaven, believe there's a hell. I know I'm a sinner. I know what my parents had real. I want that. And if it's, uh, I don't, I don't want to gamble on this. So, I mean, as soon as they got finished or that invitation, they didn't get much of in invitation. I just stepped out and came down. A fellow named Wayne Summers went through the plan of salvation with me. I prayed that morning, but I told Wayne when I prayed, I said, Wayne, I did this Sunday night. I said, nah, I understand now. I said, I believe I'm already saved because something's already going on in here. But I said, I needed to go through this. Huh? So when I got saved, I started working on all of my old cronies, all my old buddies. And uh, one of those guys, a fellow named Bucky, I probably mentioned him when I preached here last time. I tell the story of him quite often. And there's probably 20 guys that I could tell the story on. But uh, I talked to Bucky on a Friday night, witnessed to him, and uh, he he stood there and looked at me and he said, I've been watching you. Now when he said that, that really scared me because I had plenty of baggage. I had a brand new convert. He said, I've been watching you. And then a tear Wondered down his cheek and he said, I know what you have is real. I got saved in January. This is about March, early March. The late snow in that evening. And I witnessed a Bucky and he had a bag of Mechamacan pot. He tore it and flew all through the snow. Smashed a bottle of Boone's Farm wine on the ground. I thought he was going to get saved. And after all of that, I said to him, I said, Bucky, why don't you get that settled? He said, no. He said, but I promise you. He said, I'm not going to get saved right here. But he said, I promise you, he said, if you'll pick me up on Sunday morning, he said, I'll come to church on Sunday. And he said, I promise you, I will get saved on Sunday. He not only promised that he would come, he promised that he would get saved on Sunday. And I said to him, I said, Bucky, I want you to come Sunday. That was his nickname, Bucky. I said, I I want you to come on Sunday, but why don't you get saved now? What well, if something happens between now, and so, he says, no, nah, no. Nah. He said, I'm not going to smoke any dope, not going to drink any booze between now and Sunday. And he said, I'm going to get saved on Sunday. I said, you know, let quit everything, get saved. You get saved, God will take it away. And um, I, I talked to him for another 20 minutes. I left there with kind of mixed emotions. And I went home because I, I was excited because I believe if anybody ever gave me a promise they intended to keep, I think he did. But I was fearful about what might happen in the next 36 hours because he was going to get saved in about 36 hours approximately from when I talked to him that evening to when the service would be on. He was going to get saved in about a day and a half. And uh, he didn't use that language and say I'm going to get saved in 36 hours but promised me he get saved Sunday. But I went to bed that night. Next morning I was sitting at the kitchen table reading my Bible, drinking a cup of coffee and the phone rang. I picked the phone up and the voice on the other end of the line said, hey, did you hear about Bucky? And my heart sunk. I said, hear what? He said he was in a car accident last night with so-and-so. He was hitchhiking to Bedford. He had lost his driver's license, so he was hitchhiking. He, and the guy that picked him up, I knew him too. And uh, Bucky hadn't been drinking or doing any drugs, but he got in the middle of the front seat and the fellow driving was drunk. He pegged the speedometer of a Dodge Coronet 140 mile an hour. When he went over the railroad tracks at the five gables, there was a late dusting of snow that he was unaware of, went into a skid, hit a telephone pole, and snapped like a toothpick, hit a huge oak tree, and then slammed into a concrete bridge abutment at that high speed. They didn't tow that car away with a wrecker. They hauled away in six pieces on the back of a flatbed tractor trailer. Part of that was due to what the wreck did, and part of it was due to the fact that they had to cut Bucky out of that wreckage with the jaws of life. And uh, as soon as I got the call, I went to the hospital, and it was on Saturday, and uh, when I got to the hospital, they said, you can't get in, he's in surgery, and he had broken ribs and broken hip and broken legs and, I mean, punctured lung, and, but the very worst thing that happened to him was that he had severe head trauma and brain swelling, and uh, was knocked immediately on impact into a deep coma. So, I left there just with a knot in my stomach, just sick, realizing the situation. The Next day, I went to church on Sunday by myself, and as soon as church over on Sunday morning, I got in my car drove to Bedford Hospital, and they had him on a gurney, strapped to a gurney outside of an emergency operating area, didn't have him in a room or in a bed, they had all kinds of monitors hooked up to him, but they did let me go up there because I was carrying my, my Bible. I went up, stood by his bedside most of the afternoon hours, and uh, I stayed as long as the nurses had let me stay until they told me I had to leave. And I tried to get him just even to acknowledge my presence, to have any kind of a conversation, to get any kind of response out of him. I'd get nothing where it was, where it was anything coherent like he understood that I was there. But every now and then he'd start crying out, "Get him off! Get him off! Get the rats off! Get him off!" He said, "What do you What do you think that was about? I don't think I know." He had a phobia about rats. He was deathly afraid of rats. You know, like some people are snakes, and other people spiders, and other people of different things. But he had a phobia about rats. Here's a guy in Proverbs chapter ten. The Bible said, "The fear of the wicked it shall come upon him." All of your fears and phobias will come to pass forever repeatedly without end and without end and without end in hell. He is a rotten thread from hell. He has not yet arrived. He's already experiencing some of the agony that a lost soul experiences forever. And I stood by helplessly unable to do a single thing because salvation is a choice And when you lose your mental faculties, the ability to make a choice, it's too late. It's too late. I left there, went back when the nurses told me I needed to go, went to the evening service and after the evening service, I went to the house when I walked in the door, the phone was ringing. I picked it up as Bucky's parents called to tell me that at eight o'clock he had died. Now please listen to me, he was gonna get saved. In 36 hours. Paul said, I am now ready. Are you now ready? Ready for what? He said, the time of my departure is at hand. He said, I'm ready to die. Are you now ready? I didn't ask you if you want to die, if you're excited about dying, if you have a death wish. I ask you, if you're ready, have you done what God said is necessary to be prepared against the certainty of death that could take place In the next 15 minutes. Are you now ready? Paul could say, I am now ready. My friend said, I'm going to get ready in 36 hours. I promise you. The only problem was he didn't say 36, but he said, I'll get saved Sunday morning. I promise you i get saved. Better be careful about making promises you can't keep. You can't guarantee that you'll be alive in one hour, much less 36 hours. You can't guarantee you'll be alive at 1 o'clock, much less 7 o'clock this evening. God said, Behold, now is accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul could say, I am now ready, knowing that the time of his departure was at hand. Don't make the mistake that my friend made. He had good intentions, like a lot of people. But he put it off. He was going to get saved in 36 hours, but four hours later, it was too late. You Better be careful about putting your soul on the line pleading time because you may lose that bet, and when you do, you lose your soul. And what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now is the time. Are you now ready? If not, now is the time to get ready. I wonder this morning how many of us in this crowd...